At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 18, The Cambridge Five. The Cambridge or Magnificent Five was probably the greatest known spy ring in in history, let alone the Cold War. They fundamentally shifted the early Cold War balance of power in favor of the Soviets. The Cambridge Five represented the best of British society. The Cambridge Five used the British class system to not only network themselves into critical positions within the British government, but also to protect themselves against any suspicion despite their outrageous behavior on occasions. Having these social connections also gave its members access to some of the most exclusive clubs in the country and allowed them to gossip and charm high-ranking officials, all the time gathering intelligence for their Kremlin masters. As the name implies, the five were recruited from Cambridge University, from the very upper crust of the British elite society. They were recruited by Soviet intelligence officer Arnold Deutsch, who himself was an academic. Deutsch had completed his Ph.D. at 24 in chemistry at the University of Vienna. He spoke six languages, German, French, Italian, Dutch, Russian, and English. Dutch put forth a new strategy in recruiting spies. Unlike past efforts, which focused on recruiting mid-level personnel or workers in government services, Dutch would recruit young radical elites uh, in university before they entered government. However, when Dutch first recruited these young men, he didn't tell them that they would be serving the Soviet Union, but that they would be helping in the fight against fascism. Only later with time did they come to realize that they they were serving the Kremlin. Dutch would, in all, recruit some 20 agents, some of whom were never discovered. In the 1920s, Dutch became involved with the international communist movement and began working for the NKVD. Dutch's view of the new world order included sexual liberation as well as political liberation. He believed that sexual repression was just as much a part of the capitalist bourgeois political order as economic repression and exploitation. This was a key element in the recruitment of the Cambridge Five, as two of the members, Guy Burgess and Anthony Blunt, were homosexuals. John McLean, bisexual, and Ken Philby, though a heterosexual, was very much the ladies' man, having several affairs, five marriages, and five children. They all bought into this ideology of sexual liberation that Deutsch offered them. The NKVD actually liked homosexuals as because they knew how to live lives of secrecy. It should be remembered, but uh, at this time, homosexuality was against the law in Britain and considered against the laws of nature akin to bestiality. Oral sex was considered sodomy, and fornication was a sin. Per the Church of England, sex was only to take place between married couples. In the Soviet Union, homosexuality had been legalized in the 1920s. Ironically, in the 1930s, when the Cambridge Five were recruited, Stalin recriminalized homosexual activity with punishments of up to five years at hard labor. Following Stalin's death, there was a liberalization of attitudes uh, towards sexual issues in the Soviet Union, but homosexual acts remained illegal. 
However, sexual repression wasn't the only factor that radicalized the Cambridge Five. The 1930s was the depth of the Depression, and fascism was on the rise throughout Europe, and many people felt like that democratic capitalism could neither build an equitable world or stand up to fascism. Hence, like many on the left, they gravitated towards the Soviet Union ideologically. The Cambridge Social Society, or CUSS, grew from 25 members in 1932 to about 200 members by 1934. Philby, McLean, and Burgess were members of the CUSS, and membership did vary, though, between those who were members in secret and those who were openly flaunted their support. Elaborate lists were kept of sympathizers and near-sympathizers. Indeed, everyone a socialist student knew were attempted to be converted and recruited. Campus protests and activities were organized to support striking city bus drivers and sewage workers and against high rents for public housing. The socialists also worked to infiltrate other groups on campus, one being the Trinity Historical Society, another was the Apostles. Both Burgess and Blunt were a part of this secret society on campus, the Apostles. Many of the members were homosexuals and pro-Marxist. Many of the members were also members of the Bloomsbury Group, a collection of left-wing uh, writers, philosophers, artists, and economists, most famously John Maynard Keynes. Philby was the first student recruited by Deutsch and helped him recruit other students to work against fascism. Philby didn't know at the time that he was actually recruiting members for the NKVD. Deutsch told them to break all ties with Marxist groups and publicly renounce their ties with the British Communist Party and any Marxist organizations on campus, and to apply to government employment. Kin Philby, the first to be recruited, had been born in India, as his father was an Indian civil servant and a well-known Orientalist intellectual. Kim grew up in the Middle East as his father was transferred to Iraq and later worked as an advisor to the king of Saudi Arabia. In 1928, at 16, he left the Middle East to study history and economics at Cambridge. Donald McLean was a handsome, academically gifted son of a former liberal cabinet minister. He graduated with first-class honors in modern languages with an ambition to teach English in the Soviet Union or to study for a PhD. However, with the influence of Dutch, he changed his uh, mind and applied to the Foreign Office. Anthony Blunt studied French and art history, uh, the third and youngest son of a vicar. He was, however, closely related to royalty as he was a third cousin of the late Queen Mother. Blunt's vicar father was assigned to Paris with the British Embassy Chapel and so moved his family to the French capital for several years uh, during Blunt's childhood. The young Anthony became fluent in French and experienced intensely the artistic culture closely available to him, stimulating an interest which would last a lifetime and form the basis for his later career. John Crancross was Scottish and had entered Cambridge at the age of 21 with a scholarship in languages, having already studied two years at Glasgow and Sarbonne. Uh, he would achieve top marks on the Foreign Service entrance exam, 100 points above the next highest scoring applicant. He came from a solid middle-class background as his father was a manager at an ironworks and his mother a schoolteacher. Guy Burgess came from a military family. His grandfather had joined the British Army at 15 and spent most of his time abroad. His father had joined the Navy as a young man and spent most of his time at sea, which made Burgess very close to his mother. At nine, he was sent away to boarding school. Leaving his mother was hard on Burgess, uh, but he did exceptionally well in school. However, he did suffer a disturbing experience uh, where Burgess said that he walked in on his parents having sex, during which his father died of a heart attack. He claimed that this event led him to homosexuality. 
After this trauma, he was sent on to Eton until he was old enough to uh, attend Dartmouth. At Dartmouth, the British Naval Academy, he once again achieved top marks. During his time there, he became fascinated with history as well, especially the work of Alfred Mahan's The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, 1890. Burgess was let, let go from Dartmouth for poor eyesight, although rumors say it was because of his homosexual behavior. He was not well liked either by his fellow shipmates. He returned to Eton, where he played sports, joined the officer training corps, debating club, and political society. During this time, he met a young Marxist history teacher, Robert Burley, who greatly influenced Skye's views of the world. By graduation, he was ranked second amongst his classmates and won a scholarship to study history at Cambridge. Burgess, by the time he entered Cambridge and for the rest of his life, minus his time in Russia, was extremely open about his sexuality, sleeping with many men over the years. He used to say that he would sleep with any man, 17 to 75, saying he didn't really have a type as so long as they were good-looking and from a working-class background. In the 1930s, like many young men in their lives, they struggled to become established and to help the cause that they would dedicate the rest of their lives to. McLean and Crancross, both entering the Foreign Service, could pass on sensitive documents to the NKVD about the British position in the Spanish Civil War, in addition to documents around Chamberlain's efforts to appease Hitler in 1938. These documents helped to reinforce Stalin's belief that his allies didn't have the stomach to stand up to the fascist and contributed towards his decision on a non-aggression pact with Hitler in 1939. Philby, during the 1930s, struggled to find a role despite his early lead. He couldn't land a position in government. He joined the Anglo-German Friend Fellowship, a Nazi organization in Britain, to spy for the Soviets, but gathered little information of value. He eventually persuaded a London newspaper to hire him as a freelance war correspondent, and he traveled to Spain, where the NKVD assigned him the impossible task of assassinating Franco. Needless to say, he failed. Until the outbreak of the war, Blunt's main role was, to, was talent scout. Burgess, meanwhile, got a job as an editor with the Times and later with the BBC. One, one Burgess job was producing anti-Hitler propaganda broadcasts using clandestine transmitters from radio stations in Lutzenberg and Liechtenstein, which were beamed into Germany. The Second World War created a greater need in government for personnel, and the Cambridge Five, with their social connections, were able to exploit this need by getting many of their fellow agents appointed to critical positions. In 1940, Guy Burgess helped to get Philby a job in MI6 with special operations and propaganda. Crincross was assigned to Bletchley Park and the Secret Ultra Program, or the British effort to decrypt the German Enigma Code. The information that Crincross stole was instrumental in the Battle of Kursk, which ultimately broke the back of the German army. Crincross also found out about the atomic bomb project and reported back to Moscow. Ironically, Burgess's brother, Nigel, during the war got a job for MI5F branch monitoring the activities of the British Communist Party. Guy Burgess himself also worked for MI5 during this period. He recruited slash seduced homosexual diplomats and newspaper correspondents from neutral nations like Switzerland to gather gossip and information about the Germans. He would then pass on this information to both the NKVD and MI5. During World War II, the Cambridge spy ring passed on 7,867 classified political and diplomatic documents, 715 classified military documents, and 127 uh, classified documents on economic affairs, now not to mention 51 on British intelligence. Despite all this rich intelligence, the center always had its suspicion about them. 
They always feared the British were playing some type of elaborate triple cross. One of the biggest red flags to Moscow was that they reported back that the British had no spies in the Soviet Union. The Soviets just couldn't believe that this was true. Ironically, it was. During the war, Great Britain had decided to focus all of its resources on the defeat of Germany. To be fair, these failures by Soviet leadership to believe or act on information, we shouldn't be too quick to judge. We, for one, have the hindsight of history. Participants of the period had to deal with the fog and uncertainty of war. Even the American political leadership in 2003 refused to believe the CIA's reports that Saddam Hussein lacked or they weren't sure about weapons of mass destruction. To Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld, this intelligence had to be inaccurate. So not trusting information is not something that has affected only the Soviet system. After the war, Philby became head of MI6 counterintelligence, meaning it was Philby's job to hunt down Soviet spies within Great Britain. From this position, he could protect himself and other Soviet agents from being discovered. For example, in 1945, when an NKGB officer stationed in Turkey tried to defect with a list of 314 agents working in the West, Philby alerted Moscow, which had the traitor arrested along with his wife and sent back to the Soviet Union for execution. It was a good chance that the Cambridge Five, along with Philby himself, were on that list. Philby was also able to interfere with British intelligence in clandestine operations. For example, starting in 1946, British commandos started to train Albanian insurgents in Greece to cross over the border and overturn the Albanian communist government. However, Philby betrayed the operation to Moscow, and when the Albanian insurgents crossed over the border in 1949, they were ambushed, either being killed or captured. After the war, Burgess as well landed a job with the foreign ministry. It was his job to work closely with the press and to inform them about the British government position on certain matters. However, he wasn't happy in his new position. He openly disagreed with Bevan and the British the government's pro-American stance and its anti-Soviet positions and began to drink heavily. Despite this and his bizarre behavior and illegal lifestyle, he was kept on because he was brilliant and had an extensive knowledge of the Soviet leadership and Marxist theory. During this time as well, the NKGB asked him to seduce and marry Clarissa Churchill, the niece of the former and future Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who was a friend. Burgess was attractive to women and had several heterosexual affairs, but he was appalled that the NKGB would ask him to give up his homosexual lifestyle. However, during this period, Soviet records indicate he, did, he stole some 2,000 classified documents. After working for two years as a public relations officer, he was transferred to the Far Eastern Department. He was needed there for, for his knowledge of communism as China was undergoing the communist revolution under Mao. Burgess read classified reports from the region and wrote up briefs for officials suggesting government positions. Burgess's wasn't very influential in his new role, but he intercepted a number of classified documents and sent them on to Moscow. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share the show on social media or tell your friends to check us out or to give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. I also want to do a shout-out to Michael uh, Pudestra uh, for a very generous contribution. We appreciate the support greatly. I also want to thank Jim Hendrickson for his support. As well, your support goes a long way in convincing my wife to allow me to continue to do this. Christmas is a few weeks away, and if you're still th thinking about getting a gift or if you want to learn a little bit more about any of the subjects we've talked about so far in this series, check out our, our books tab on the website. 
Any purchase you make it there through Amazon uh, helps the podcast with no additional cost to yourself. So if you want to check out our book selection or donate, the website is www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. We greatly appreciate your support in helping to keep us to keep this show going. Now back to the show. By the early 1950s, all the Cambridge Five were under incredible pressure as the act of living double lives for more than 15 years started to catch up with them. Moreover, they knew of the Viona decrypts and the fact that Klaus Fuchs, the at- atomic scientist, had been arrested for espionage in America. In 1948, McLean was appointed head of the chancery at the British Embassy in Cairo. He was at the time the youngest chancellor in the British Foreign Service. However, he didn't get along with his Cairo NKGB handler and attempted to quit in December 1949, attaching a note to some documents he passed on. The note was ignored by both his handler and the center, and not until he asked again in April 1950 did the center respond. McLean, in the meantime, had a mental breakdown. In a drunken rage with a friend, he vandalized the flat of two female members of the U.S. Embassy, ripping up their underwear and destroying their bathroom. A few days later, the British Foreign Office sent him back to Britain to recuperate. They associated this bizarre behavior with the distress of the job. Meanwhile, Burgess's excessive drinking led to an accident one night when on one of his drunken escapades, he fell down a flight of stairs, hitting his head. He had to be hospitalized and started to take a, a drug regimen after, afterwards to deal with the headaches and insomnia, obtaining supplies of medication through a veterinarian friend. Burgess also started to have money problems, despite his foreign office pay and the generous amount the Soviets were paying him for his services. This was more than likely a result of his alcoholic and party lifestyle. Later on holiday with his mother in the Mediterranean, visiting Gibraltar and Algiers, he became belligerent and drunk. He also passed sensitive information to an American journalist with known Soviet ties. It looked as if he would be forced to resign or be dismissed. But he survived the review and was just reprimanded. Instead of being dismissed, he was reassigned to America. His job there was to monitor American uh, public opinion towards the Far East, contacting American journalists. Burgess was also close friends with the Roosevelt family, and the Roosevelts took him under their wing, showing him around and helping him to make contacts in the United States. Nevertheless, Burgess soon came under the suspicion of the D.C. Vice Squad for his homosexual activities in bars and public bathrooms. The D.C. police also spotted him in the company of known Russians, which British MI6 was alerted to. Philby, who was also stationed in America, allowed Burgess to move in with him briefly to try and keep him out of trouble and off the radar. However, these efforts were in vain. Burgess was sent to speak at the Citadel Military Academy in Charleston, South Carolina, for a conference on behalf of the British government. On the way there, he received three speeding tickets and was rude and condescending with the officers claiming diplomatic immunity. Upon arriving in Charleston, he gave the speech visibly intoxicated and gave a very anti-American speech. During his stay there, he also almost got into a violent confrontation with Kermit Roosevelt, who worked for the CIA. The two had an intense argument about U.S. foreign policy and both had to be physically removed from the room before they came to blows. Upon his return to D.C., he learned that three governors had called the embassy to complain about Burgess's behavior and that he would be suspended and to be sent home in disgrace to be forced to either resign or be dismissed. However, the noose was tightening around the group. The Viona Project had identified McLean as a Soviet agent, and he was put under surveillance. 
The senator agreed that he had to be exfiltrated to the Soviet Union before he was arrested. Burgess, back in London, would assist by traveling with McLean part of the way, but, he, but McLean was so nervous that Burgess agreed to defect with him. They couldn't take a train or fly since McLean was on a no-fly list, so they booked a cruise that stopped in France. French authorities didn't check passports when the ship docked, so it was easy for Burgess and McLean to disappear into the French countryside. When McLean and Burgess defected, Philby was mortified, as he now, too, would come under suspicion. McLean had been identified as a spy by MI5, but MI5 was unaware of Burgess as being a spy. Burgess and Philby were longtime friends, and he had recently let him stay at his home. MI5 quickly searched Burgess's house with, uh, with ironically, Blunt's help, uh, who they did not know was a spy yet. Blunt tried to recover what material he could, but the MI5 discovered notes that blew Crancross's cover. Philby was recalled from the States and dismissed. However, he re many within MI6 still refused to believe that he was a spy. The government lacked the evidence to prosecute Philby on espionage charges and were eventually forced by the media and Philby himself to declare that he was not a traitor. Philby eventually got a job as a foreign correspondent in Beirut writing for The Economist and The New Republic. When the British government eventually did gather the necessary evidence, Philby defected to the Soviet Union in 1963. Philby, Burgess, and McLean all lived under a cloud of suspicion in the Soviet Union. The KGB never fully trusted them. Some still suspected that they might be part of a triple cross and still loyal to the British. They didn't enjoy life in the Soviet Union, missing the clubs and social life of Britain, not to mention the excitement and life purpose of being a spy. They all drank heavily and their health suffered. Philby was disturbed by the quality of life that he discovered in the Soviet Union. It was far from the society that he had thought he had fought for. When Philby died in 1988, he was given a funeral with full military honors. Burgess was frustrated that he could not continue his homosexual lifestyle that he enjoyed in Britain, going out in the town and having multiple sexual partners and flings, although he, he could live openly with his lover. He never learned Russian and passed most of his days drinking in his flat, dying in 1963, only 52. McLean, unlike Burgess, assimilated into the Soviet Union and became a respected citizen, learning Russian, earning a doctorate, and serving as a specialist on the economic policy of the West and British foreign affairs. He also worked for the Soviet Ministry and the Institute of World Economic and International Relations. He was awarded the Order of the Red Banner of Labor and the Order of Combat and passed away in March 1983. Anthony Blunt, not wishing to defect to Russia, exchanged information for immunity, but Margaret Thatcher outed him as a spy in front of Parliament in 1979, and the Queen stripped him of his knighthood. John Crancross confessed his spying in 1952 to authorities, but most in public didn't know. He lost his civil service job and was penniless and unemployed. He moved to the United States as a lecturer at Northwestern University. He then moved to Rome, where he worked for the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization as a translator, also taking on work for the research office of an Italian bank. During this time in Rome, his secret finally reached the public. In December 1979, a journalist concluded that Crancross was the fifth man and confronted him. Crancross's third confession became front-page news. In 1995, declassified Soviet documents proved that he was indeed a Soviet spy, and later that year he died of a stroke at 82. In a final estimation, the Cambridge Five caused serious damage to the U.S. and Great Britain in the early Cold War. 
Practically all high-level plans and policy for the U.S., U.K., and Canada was available to them. Information about the atomic bomb in both Britain and the United States and all U.K. and U.S. diplomatic codes and ciphers in existence prior to 1951. The discovery of the Cambridge Five also severely damaged the special relationship between the U.S. and Great Britain, with the Americans ending intelligence cooperation with the British until at least 1955. The British had achieved intelligence superiority in both world wars against the Germans, but in the new contest of the Cold War, they had clearly been bested by the Soviets. The KGB calculated that between 1935 and 1955, the Cambridge Five supplied some 20,000 classified documents to Soviet intelligence. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 18, The Cambridge Five. Check out our next episode coming in January, which was fan-requested, The Early Cold War in Scandinavia. Why didn't Finland become a member of the Warsaw Pact? Why did Norway and Denmark give up their traditional neutrality to join NATO? What role did the region play in the early Cold War diplomacy? Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have friends uh, into history, uh, but you still want to help us, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through our Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, fill out our survey there to help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.